sometimes we don't see the significance of what we're doing. Often when we read the newspapers, we don't read at Spirit Rock about 75 <laughs> lesbian, gay men, bisexual and transgendered members of our community um, got together and practiced awareness and loving kindness, dedicating themselves to their own inner peace and freedom and that of the peace and freedom of all life everywhere. But even though we don't read that in the Marin or San Francisco, Marin Times or whatever it's called, or the San Francisco Chronicle, <laughs> um, it's nice to remember that that's what we're doing. Often when we do read the newspapers, and it's not just reading the newspapers, it's uh, in our jobs too, or in our, in our lives. We are challenged over and over again with delusion, with the kind of greed that trades arms and supports war and murder, or the kind of hatred that inspires people to kill each other or to hurt each other in intimate relationships. or just hearing the words of this recent election. <laughs> and it is so easy, it is so easy. Because we're not in the newspaper too, to remind ourselves. that our efforts make a difference. That just as there is and are armies that are dedicated to fighting and to killing, there are armies like us who are dedicated to peace and to harmony. And that not only is this dedication profoundly transforming for us, and I have absolutely 100% faith in saying this to you, that this day builds something that can never be unbuilt inside each one of us. We are creating the conditions, we are creating the conditions 
for peace and harmony not just inside of ourselves but outside of ourselves because actually there isn't a separation. The scientists think it's big news that because we're driving so many cars that there's a ozone hole and there's a hole in our atmosphere. But Buddhism uh, 2,500 years ago understood that for every action there is always a consequence. For every moment that we have come back to ourselves, for every moment that we have tried to connect with our breath, for every moment that we have made an effort to be present with our eating or with our standing and walking, we are building that momentum of peace and harmony inside of ourselves as well as outside. And just like the, oz the hole, is it the ozone hole? Is that what they call it? The ozone hole didn't just magically appear, but had certain causes. So too, are we creating the causes for our own opening and unfolding, for a vision that is actually being manifested? And because we do not have a mirror reflecting that, Please don't fall into the delusion that it isn't happening. It is happening. There is us and our deep movement for peace and freedom. And it is important. Not only is it important, it is beautiful. Not only is it beautiful and important, but actually it is the inheritance that each one of us as a human being has that inheritance, that capacity to find our full humanity, to find our full humanity as lesbians and gay men, as bisexuals, as cross-dressers, as tran transgendered people. It is a unique expression for each one of us. It is a unique expression in our community. And it is also a universal expression universal in the sense that each one of us has this capacity to open into our humanity as a boundless, as a non-separate way of living, as a place that is infused with heart, as a place that is limitless and luminous. That is there. That is their calling us. And as the armies that are dedicated to achieving victories pursue those victories, let us not forget that we have this vision and this heart's calling and that it actually can call us every moment. It can call us every moment and it is calling us every moment to say, come back to me, come back to me. Come back to me from the places where you are separated. And we do get separated. We get separated. The, that feeling of separated is not because we are separate. We are not separate. It is the delusion that thinks, that thinks we're separated. But that delusion does grab hold of us.
and entice us into thinking that we are separate and that we are separate from our hearts and that we are separate from this way of living or this being, this deeper humanity that is all-inclusive. And that separation often manifests itself in a way that deludes us into thinking that certain of our spiritual practices and the way that we live our life is directed towards this inner calling when actually it isn't. And I want to go back to that, um, some of the question and answers that we had because it's going back to that whole issue of problems and having problems, having problems in our life and fixing the problems in our life. I am not saying it isn't sometimes a good thing to fix the problems in our life. Just like with leaky plumbing, it's good to fix the leaky plumbing. Some of that fixing means that we belong to health clubs or we go jogging. Some of the fixing means we go to therapy. Some of the fixing means that we even put ourselves in retreat situations. Some of, <laughs> <laughs> some of the fixing means we move out of relationships and some of the fixing means we move in relationship. But what is it? What is it that defines a problem as a problem and a problem that needs to be fixed? And how is that different from actually answering that calling of awakening? Because it is very easy to see our spiritual practice as a fix-it rather than as being, uh, being part of this transformational practice and way of living. So sometimes I find myself saying, oh, I have to meditate, like I have a problem. <laughs> and then it becomes even more of a problem when I don't. <laughs> and it seems like when I say that to myself, that I have to meditate, that I'm meditating to fix my mind state. You know, I don't kind of like my mind state and I want to fix it, so I better meditate. And oh, I'm so lazy because I didn't meditate. And so in some way I'm slothful. I'm slothful and um, about, and torpid, thank you, <laughs> torpid. <laughs> about, <laughs> about fixing my mind state and meditating. And this, this is the, the, tightrope that we walk in this practice because the truth is that we don't have to meditate in order to awaken. Nor do we have to be in relationship or out of relationship, in therapy or out of therapy, successful professionally or not. We do have to be present. We do have to be present. This is by Philip Simmons, who ha um, um, found himself with Lou Gehrig's disease and in a wheelchair. The present moment is an edge, this 
evanescent sliver of time between past and future. We're called away from it continually by our earthly pleasures and concerns. Even now, you may be thinking, it's time for another cup of coffee and one of those blueberry muffins. Seems it's always time to be doing something other than what we're doing at the moment. Like the spotted owl or the sea turtle, the present moment has become an endangered species. Yet, more and more, I find that dwelling in the present moment in the face of everything that would call us out of it is our highest spiritual discipline. More boldly, I would say that our very presentness is our salvation. The present moment entered into fully is our gateway into eternal life. Now, when I say this, you could accuse me of being a mystic, and I am, but of a very ordinary kind. I don't doubt that some people throughout history and some living today have heard voices and seen visions. But my mysticism involves no access to other realms, only the deeper experience of this one. Mine is the mysticism of everyday life, of heat laundry and the bruised toe, of overcooked broccoli and the dew-spangled leaves of sunrise and sorrow, laughter and linguini, music and mold. This everyday mysticism requires no special powers, only imagination, a doting and practiced attention to the ordinary and a willingness to be surprised by grace. Still, when I say I'm looking for eternity in a pile of laundry, you might wonder if I've been going a bit heavy on the Tabasco sauce. <laughs> but I'm just being pragmatic. I don't know what, if anything, follows this life. What I do know is that I'm here now in a world of worn shoes and rose petals, seeking eternity wherever I can find it. You might say that I want my eternal life now before it's over with. So how to go about it? How can we cultivate this eternal present? The Buddhist practice of mindfulness offers one model. Dwelling in the moment, on our breath, on the work of our hands immediately before us, we're drawn into life's luminousness into the mystery at the heart of ordinary things. Dwelling in the present, at least at first, involves forgetting past and future, stopping the mind's whirlwind of memory and expectation, giving ourselves the blessed hour's calm as we meditate, bake bread, walk through the forest, or play games with a child. But with further practice, we find past and future returning to our, our awareness, only now without bringing anxiety or destruction along with them. Instead, we become aware of living in eternity. The present moment enlarges, drawing past and future into it, until we are dwelling not just in the moment, but within the whole of our life.
we have a practice and it's tedious much of the time. Lifting, placing, shifting. Lifting, placing, shifting. We have a practice of watching the breath, of opening to the breath in and out, rising and falling, stretching and pulling. And sometimes we fall into the trap that it is the practice that is the awakening. But the, it is not the practice that is the awakening. It is a practice. The practice is the training of the mind to create the conditions for awakening. That awakening, though, can happen at any moment when the mind is undistracted, when it is present. And that's what Philip Simmons was saying. He was saying it is in the moment, and that is where it is. It is in the moment, and we practice this practice. And Eric and I and some of you have spent months and months on three-month retreats and six-month retreats practicing this practice. The practice is not the awakening. Awakening is the awakening, and awakening can happen at any moment in the practice. And often what happens with a practice is that we think, oh, I need to practice. For, oh, I have to go on retreat for six months to practice. And oh, I have to go do my therapy in order to come to a point where I can awaken. That is not what these teachings are about. These teachings say, in each moment, with undistracted presence, that moment begins to stretch into the eternal. The more the mind is undistracted and the less clinging there is in the mind, the more the mind is in the present moment, the more that mind drops further and further into the depths of the ocean of being. And sometimes it's just like that, and it can happen anywhere. And what's important about saying this is that we need to bring, I think, an immediacy into our practice instead of this long-term deferment of, OK, I still got to do my three-month retreat, or I still have to do Eric and Arena's retreat in April. I'm a beginner. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is. The, the deluded mind is into deferral. That is the nature of the deluded mind. And this practice is not about deferral. This practice is not about saying, wait until, this, uh, wait until tomorrow, or wait until the next sitting or walking period. This practice is about saying, here, right here, right now, you listening to this Dharma talk, right now is it. This is where it is. It being that possibility of opening to the full humanity. And it can be in reading or in listening to a Dharma talk. It can be in any point in our life. And our dedication to ourselves rests in understanding that as long as we are present, we are giving ourselves the gift of the conditions of that opening. We could say it in that way, as long as we are present. We could also say it as Rilke says it, and this is in a slightly different way, perhaps everything terrible, everything terrible in our lives, in its deepest being, is something that needs our love. 
perhaps everything terrible, in its deepest being, is something that needs our love. Because this opening, it rests not only in being in the present moment, but rests in being in the present moment with a heart that does not discriminate. With a heart that is not charged with, I like this and I don't like that, but rather is open to include all experiences. And it is in that opening and that inclusiveness that the sense of having a problem drops away. Not then that sometimes we aren't in connection, and that's what we were talking about this morning, when we are in connection with something that uh, um, an appropriate action doesn't arise. It does, but it doesn't arise from that place of fixing it. It arrives rather from the place of holding whatever is happening inside of us with love. That is both the manifestation of our deepest humanity and also the path back to it. How can we tell whether we are in a fix-it relationship? One thing is that there is not very much kindness in that relationship. Often, actually, fixing it and seeing our experiences as a problem has no love and no kindness. It is future-oriented. It is actually expressed with a subtle aversion, a pushing away. If I can just get rid of this experience, then I can awaken. The pathologizing of human experience, which has been perpetuated by the over-psychologizing of our culture, is another horror that has been masquerading as truth. We have been psychologized into believing that only certain experiences are appropriate. We have been given words that label our experience and thereby put us into an aversive relationship to it. The vastness is rigorously non-pathologizing because it is unable to perceive anything as wrong. It is absurd to think that we have to get rid of certain aspects of our experience to be acceptable. As mentioned before, it would be like the ocean saying it simply cannot be the ocean as long as there is seaweed floating around in it. The ocean is the ocean, no matter what it contains. We are the vastness and we contain everything thoughts, emotions, sensations, preferences, fears, ideas, even identifications. Nothing has to go anywhere. In any case, where would it go? 
Psychological directives that aim at a cure imply that certain thoughts or emotions are a sign we aren't acceptable. Spiritual directives that aim at a go goal called realization suggest that certain thoughts or emotions are impediments to spiritual unfolding. After all, they say, how can we be the vastness if we're experiencing confusion or fear, anger or sadness? But the presence of thoughts and feelings means only that thoughts and feelings are present. We interpret our experiences to mean something generally negative about who we are. This interpretation creates suffering when it passes itself off as truth. But if it's seen to be what it is, an interpretation, it presents no problem. It's simply there too in the vastness. That's the calling. This is the calling of our heart. And at the same time, there are times when we are not held in that vastness, when we are not held in that capacity of the emptiness to dissolve everything into what it is is what it is. And it is in those places that we are then challenged at the same time as understanding that the vastness is still there. We are then challenged to the rigors of a developmental practice. I am caught and I am lost in my anger or hatred. I know somewhere I have read that it says the vastness is there all the time and no big deal, <laughs> but forget it. That doesn't mean anything <laughs> right now because I'm in the mind storm of anger. No problem. No problem. It doesn't mean we're failures. It doesn't mean that we can't awaken because actually we're awake all the time anyway. It just means that then we are into the practice. And the practice is okay, when I feel caught in the problem, when I feel caught in the mind storm, my challenge is, and that's going back to the question and answer period that we had that Eric spoke about, is going back to opening to the experience with our awareness, not judging it, opening it, feeling it with that kindness of heart, over and over again, refraining from the identification and interpretation that our tapes and words give to the experience, dropping down from the storyline, and then coming back to a neutral place. And that's what we do here and in our lives over and over again. So that it's like we are the vastness. Here is anger. And anger has got me in its grip. Oh, oh Eric, grab my hand. <laughs> Get me in its anger has anger has got me in its grip. Forget the vastness. There's just this right now. So then I'm like, oh how oh how can I hold this? Oh oh anger, let me bring my heart to you. Oh no problem. Here, here, 
Lena said, no problem. Oh, no problem. Let me feel this. Oh, oh, it's okay. I'm here for you. Oh, this is so hard. I hate it. Oh, oh, okay, okay. I'll walk for a moment. I'll breathe. Oh, oh, it's okay, Anger. You're still here. You're a good friend. That's, I know I'm really trying to call that into being. Oh, it's okay. You know, of course I'm angry. I'm a human being. Okay. And slowly the anger lets go its grip more and more. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> sometimes the practice is really tedious. It is very tedious. It is not as though this vastness is e easily comes and then we're in it for the rest of our lives. It, that isn't it. This is a tedious practice. We over... <laughs> She's getting a good laugh out of it. <laughs> Over and over again, we are challenged. Over and over again, we are challenged by the places we, where we are caught in the smallness of our being, in the mind storms of anger or grief or sorrow or greed or desire. No problem. That's the beauty of this practice, is that it offers both the vision and the immediacy of a moment. And, and this is why it's, so, it's just so lovely, because it has a detailed path. It says, bring your awareness and loving kindness to the experience, make effort, bring equanimity, practice the precepts of non-harming, bring right understanding, things we can read about, listen to Dharma talks. There is, a, there is a very clear path that is building the capacity of the mind so that when we do come to the present moment, that mind is strong in its ability to be undistracted and can open to the immediacy of the vastness of our being. And actually, and Eric and I were just talking about it last night, what happens is that we go back and forth. Early on in my practice, I experienced an opening. It was, it was a tremendous and beautiful gift. And then I spent years and years of lifting, <laughs> placing, and shifting, and in, out, in, out, you know, and just building up the, the strength of the mind more and more, not to be swayed by the, the mistaken ideas of life, more and more so that is undistracted and present more and more so that, that that vastness infuses even the deluded moments so that there is more and more joy. That's, that's the vision and the path. <coughs> this is what David White says. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your womb tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds.
except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. This path becomes a path that is as wide as our lives and our world when it is infused with the understanding that our awakening is at its heart and that everything then becomes in its service. And that is the difference between having a problem and living our lives in vision. When it is in service of our awakening, it becomes the path. Don't forget that each moment you are living, you are actually living in the eternal and that our lives are about rediscovering that moment after moment after moment. So let's sit for just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.